Marketing is not going to fix a bad business. All right, great marketing will only accelerate the demise of a bad business. That's Ryan Dice, CEO of Digital Marketer and one of the most dynamic speakers on marketing today. It is a, an amplifier. It is a fuel. It is an accelerant. All right. And so it's like alcohol, right? If you're a jerk, alcohol is going to make you a bigger jerk. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Ryan Dice to discuss what all successful business leaders have in common and marketing strategies that actually work. Great marketing must get people to not just notice, but to stare. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Ryan Dice is the CEO of Digital Marketer, one of the largest and most highly regarded authorities in marketing today. He's not only an expert in what works when it comes to marketing, he's also a seasoned entrepreneur who took the stairs on his way to success. I didn't start off as a marketer. I just wanted money. I launched my first business from my freshman uh, college dorm room because I just literally was broke. And this was 1999. The internet was new. It's like, maybe I could sell some stuff here. And uh, originally, I marketed myself uh, as a web designer. And uh, that was kind of how I got my start. I was terrible, by the way, but um, I had a, I believe we're past the statute of limitations, uh, which your audience would appreciate. But I, I had a uh, pirated version of Adobe Go Live um, that my roommate had gotten for me. And so I could figure out how to design some really, really, really ugly, ugly websites. And um, I tried, you know, start off in services, had a hard time getting clients. The only client I could get, not kidding, was a lactation consultant. So here I am, 19 years old, building a website for one with like, you know, posting like breast pumps and all this other kind of, it was, it, it was a little bit awkward for a 19 year old uh, kid. I now have four kids, by the way, very thankful for those people. But uh, very long story short, she, she wasn't able to pay me. Her husband lost, uh, lost his job. She had to go back to work, wasn't able to pay me, but she had written this little ebook on how to make your own baby food brilliant woman, like really looking back on it. So, so, so smart and thoughtful because what she realized is, okay, I'm going to help these women, uh, you know, these new moms nurse, like I'm going to show them how to breastfeed. That's what lactation consultants do for those of you listening who don't know. But once I've shown them how to do that, they're kind of done with me. So I want to get into childhood nutrition. She was thinking beyond the initial sale, which just that right there, there's a lesson, right? Um, she was thinking beyond that initial sale. And so she wanted to get into childhood nutrition and teach these moms also how to make their own baby food. Well, I didn't know anything about this, but you know, she basically said, here, hopefully you can sell this you know, little ebook and make some money. I'm really sorry, I can't pay you. So the very first website that I ever built was an ebook on how to make your own baby food and uh, charged 14 bucks. It made you know, a few hundred dollars in the first like, month I was selling it. I was like, this is kind of what I want to do. And uh, a few years later, that's, all, that's what I was doing. Graduated from uh, college, had about 100 of these little websites. And um, next thing you know, people started asking me how I was doing it. And that's kind of how I got into talking about marketing. But it was definitely a uh, circuitous route to where we are today. 
And it's always interesting this, this, when I speak to people who are entrepreneurial from an early age and you know, it's like if you're just doing what seems natural to you that you don't really think about yourself like entrepreneur, like, you know, this is in the early days, Shark Tank did not exist. Entrepreneur is not a very, like, let's say uh, a cool topic, but it's interesting kind of the naivete that uh, many of us had. I know I had when you're doing something entrepreneurial, but then when it starts to really build and grow, you start to realize you might be a bit ill-equipped to actually run a business and grow an organization. Oh, yeah. I mean, entrepreneurs to me, they've got to have this perfect combination of being naive but overconfident, right? Because if somebody would have said, which a lot of people did later, you can never sell an ebook, you know, a, a downloadable PDF that's like 20 something pages. You can't sell that for $14. That's what real books sell for. I, I, I might have believed them. You know, thankfully, I wasn't asking anybody their opinion. Who would I have talked to? My roommate? You know, he didn't know anything either. So, you know, I was just ignorant enough to try it and just overconfident enough uh, to think it might work to put in the effort. But then what's interesting, because we are somewhat ignorant, because uh, if, if we did take the full, add everything up and get crystal clear on it before we move forward, you know, we might not do it. We get out on the skinny branches sometimes. And, and so I think a lot of entrepreneurs, yeah, that's why a lot of entrepreneurs have that uh, imposter syndrome. I know I did. And uh, I, I do think that it's this constant battle between being overconfident and then being, oh, I'm an imposter. I'm overconfident. Oh, I'm an imposter. And that's called my entire adult life, like waffling between those two. We all have, or at least what, you know, many of the entrepreneurs that I speak with, it seems like we have like these catalyst moments or almost like Rafiki moments, you know, like Rafiki from The Lion King and Simba's running through the jungle and he kind of looks up at the stars, sees his father and kind of realizes who he's meant to be. But those moments often come when we're experiencing a great deal of adversity and, and probably a, a turning point where there's also a lot of pain. And I know that there's a moment that you reference where you experience this, this moment. You even kind of, I think you framed the napkin as well. But if you could speak to what that experience was. Well, there's been a couple. I'll tell the specific story you're, you're talking about, but, but you're, you're right. Every time I've experienced a real significant kind of leveling up, it wasn't because of some great discovery while I just like went and took a, you know, one week, you know, or two week offsite and just was there with my thoughts. It's like, no, back against the wall, nowhere to go but forward and punching was when I've done it. And I've gotten better at not putting myself in that situation. Like I've gotten better at being a bit more like, how do we uh, have a strategic crisis, I guess. But yeah, no, I mean, I remember the first time I launched that website was back in 1999 because I couldn't pay my rent. Like literally rent was coming due. I was on full grant scholarships and I had a part-time job and um, my uh, grant check, I didn't know if it was going to arrive. So it's like, I got to do something to make some money. And just fast forward, like everything that I did, like, I don't think I would have done that had it not been for that moment. You reference uh, the napkin, which yeah, it is, it is framed. I mean, I was, it, it was uh, 2006. So now you figure I made my first sale online in 1999, graduated from college in 2003, got married the weekend after. At this point, I think I'm, you know, God's gift to marketing in the business world, right? I'm doing pretty well. Well, a lot of the stuff that I was doing was relying upon the Google algorithms and it was SEO based. And I woke up one morning and literally all my websites were gone, gone, wiped from the face of the Google universe. I went from making really, really good predictable income without having to do anything to making nothing. And uh, I battled for a year to try to figure out how to make it work. Well, here I am in uh, 2006 at the Hilton Anatole in Dallas, Texas, and I am about a quarter million dollars in debt from trying to make this work, not telling my wife because we just had a brand new baby. I didn't want her to know that I was, you know, racking up so much debt and utterly failing. Um, 
I figured I would get it fixed, but I'm sitting there at this bar and I'm like, I'm done. I can't, I don't have any more, I can't get any more money. You know, like uh, this was pre-crash, right? Pre-financial crisis. So if you could fog a mirror, you could get a line of credit. Well, I had two lines of credit from two different banks and had maxed out all the credit cards. I was done. A quarter million dollars in consumer debt. I was, there was no more to be had. And I remember sitting there at this bar. It was funny. I just recalled this conversation I had with a buddy months prior. And we were just a casual conversation. Like, isn't it amazing how many business ideas are started on the back of a napkin, right? Whether it's Southwest Airlines or, you know, you hear all the stories, right? And I don't know why, but that, that, that the memory of that conversation popped into my head at that moment. And I looked up and sure enough, there was a stack of napkins sitting there on the bar. And so I just looked at it and I stared at it and I went, okay, if I can't write on a napkin, how my business works, how it makes money, then if I can't do this, I'm going to give myself, you know, basically until I finish this next drink. If I can't write how, how my business works and how I make money on this napkin, then I'm, I'm just going to go to bed, wake up in the morning and ask for my old job back and, and probably declare bankruptcy. That was, that was basically my plan. And if I can, then I'm going to work this plan until I'm completely out of money and, and, and that's that. And uh, so I did. I borrowed a pen from the bartender. I scribbled a very, very simple sales funnel on a napkin. And I said, you know what? I should just do this. And uh, that was, you know, I, I jokingly call it my million dollar napkin because uh, that was the first year that I wound up generating a million dollars in revenue working that napkin. But yeah, it's been when my back's been against the wall. I wish it weren't that way. I wish I could get better, but that's when we level up. It's interesting in that simplification because I think one of the tenets of digital marketing is that, you know, when you're teaching and training people that uh, you're, you're only going to focus on teaching them what's proven, you know, so that it's, it's always that your team's investing a lot of marketing dollars and a lot of energy on marketing tests and determining what works, what doesn't work. And I think over, over the years, you guys have invested over $15 million in, on various marketing tests. So I'm sure you have no shortage of data and insights. But when you boil it down, if you look at all the $15 million worth of tests, what are the key trends and takeaways? Like what, what works? What you just said there, I think is important. I kind of want to, um, you know, maybe put a pin in that because uh, I, I think that's important. I used to, and the way I got myself in so much trouble was chasing all the tricks, all the tactics, all the shiny objects. And it wasn't until I sat down and I said, okay, what am I doing that actually works? I don't care if it isn't cool. I don't care if it isn't hip. I don't care if it isn't like a TikTok strategy, whatever. Like, what am I doing that just actually works? Okay, I'm just going to do this. And so to your point, like, that's what I did when I wrote that napkin. Like, when I, when I scribbled it out, there was nothing cool, nothing sexy about it. Nobody would have been overly impressed by it. But it worked, and it was proven. And I tried a bunch of stuff that didn't work, and I narrowed it down to only the things um, that did. And, and digital marketers the same way, right? We're, we're rarely the first to talk about something. Because we want to go out and do it and make sure that it actually um, that it actually works. But at the end of the day, it's amazing. Tactics come and tactics go, and these little things that'll work for a moment, these little tricks, these little hacks, those are inefficiencies in the market that close up and they go fast. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is who's the person who's able and willing to spend the most to get a customer. I mean, that's it. That is what marketing at the end of the day comes down to. Marketers like to brag about their conversion rates. Screw your conversion rates. I don't care how high your conversion compared to what? Like, you know, what are you selling? What's your price point? But they like to brag about their high conversion rates. They like to brag about, you know, their, their ROI. They like to brag about the cheapest clicks. Don't brag about that. Brag about how much you're able to spend to acquire a customer because you've engineered your business in such a way that that customer is worth more. 
right? I'm more impressed than the people that are that are able to spend more than me, not the people that are able to figure out some trick or hack uh, to spend less. There's a lot to unpack there. And, and Ryan, I feel like we just uh, upset a lot of listeners because if someone probably let out like a collective like groan, if you will, because they thought they were going to learn some like some tactic or some trick or just something to give them an edge. They're like, you know, Ryan, where's the edge? And I'm curious what your thoughts are, because it seems like a lot of the marketing community and even, you know, many entrepreneurs, they almost seem like obsessed with chasing that next trick, whatever that next trend is or whatever it might be. Why do you think that is? I think different people chase it for different reasons. Some people chase it because it's this blind hope, the same reason people buy lottery tickets, right? I think some people chase it because it's fun. Like truly, like I know people who are independently wealthy, they've got great businesses and they still are calling me like, oh, did you hear about this new thing? Like, why do I care and why do you care? So I think diff- I don't, I don't want to suggest that everybody who's chasing these things are doing it for because they're basically like delusional unicorn chasers. But unfortunately, I think way too many people are looking for a shortcut right? And that only never works. And I, and I get it. Like, I know that it's not that, that trick, but if you can spend more time saying like, how can I make a customer worth more to me? And by the way, usually the way that that happens is by figuring out new and better ways to serve them by starting with the customer working backwards, right? By starting with what is a customer worth normally, right? Because this is just, let's get really, really simple with math. All right. If your customer is worth half of what my customer is worth, then I can spend twice as much as you to acquire that customer and and still make the same margin, right? That's just very, very basic math. Well, let's talk about something else that's just kind of a known. Uh, A click costs what a click costs. I get it. Somebody's got some trick. Somebody's got some hack where they're going to be able to get Facebook clicks or Instagram clicks or YouTube or Google or whatever for way cheaper than anybody else. Even if that's true, and it usually isn't, but even if it's true, it'll go away. Other people will find out That is a momentary inefficiency in the market that will close. It will close. So here's the deal. A click costs what a click costs. It just does. All right. And and depending on the market that you're in, that click could be 600 bucks, right? I mean, personal injury, mesothelium, like some of these clicks are going to be incredibly expensive. Why? Because those customers are worth a lot. Those clients are worth a lot. If you're selling some type of like consumer apparel, a click may only be, you know, a buck 48, Right. The point is a click costs what a click costs. It's a commodity now. It's milk. It's eggs. It's bread. It's cheese. So let's simplify marketing. If you want eyeballs, if you want awareness, if you want traffic, whatever you call it, right, you go to the traffic store and you buy it. It's just simple as that. You go to the traffic store and you buy it. Right now, the traffic store is called Google and the traffic store is called Facebook. Google and Facebook combined represent about 83% of all digital ad spend. Google and Facebook. And Google includes Google Search, Google Content Network. It also includes YouTube, right? Which I know you know a thing or two about. And then Facebook, right? Facebook also includes Instagram. So between Google, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, that's 83% of all digital ad spend. Digital ad spend is more than 50% of all ad spend. So that's where you go right now. It's been consolidated. So the idea that I'm going to have some inefficiency, I'm going I'm to have some gain, I'm going to get an edge on the buy side you're not. There's no more edge to be had on the buy side. It just doesn't happen. Where do you get an edge? You get an edge by once you got them as a lead by following up better and getting more of those people to, uh, to convert from a lead into a prospect into a client, right? But the big edge comes from how can I engineer the economics? How can I invest more? People think that, that oh, marketing is done because I got the lead. No, it isn't. No, no more than like, than you're done from a marriage perspective, like you're done dating uh, just because you're now married. I've been happily married for almost 20 years. If I just was like, 
yeah, honey, we're married now. I'm not going to take you out to dinner. That would not be good. But people do that to their clients and, and you know prospects all the time and wonder why they don't ascend. So that's where as a marketer, from a marketing perspective, that's where you need to focus. A click cost, what a click costs. Focus on ascending the, that traffic into prospects. And then by all means, focus on getting those, uh, those clients into becoming bigger and better clients and referring clients. So I'm glad you went there. Yeah, and I didn't know that you, that you would, but you know, when you're kind of reading between the lines, a lot of what you're, what you're describing is at its core, you really should be focusing on a really strong business foundation because if you've got the right, let's say, ascension ladder internally, you've got the right customer service, the right product, the right client experience, the strong brand, you will attract the best clients. But if you're trying to solve the marketing problem first, and then the business is, is not fundamentally strong, then you're kind of approaching it backwards. Well, marketing is amplification, right? And so what are you amplifying? If you are just, let, let's just, can, can, I, can I be mildly PG-13? Please. Okay, if you're an asshole, let's just say you're just a total prick, just a, a douchebag of the highest order. Uh, the worst thing in the world that you could do is talk to more women if you're trying to meet your bride, right? Let's say you're sincere, like, I want to get married. I, I want to meet the one. This is the year. I want to meet the one. I'm tired of running around. But you're still a total freaking clown, all right, the worst thing you could do is talk to more people. You don't want to amplify what you are right now. You want to improve what you are right now, then go out there and talk. Um, another analogy would just be plug the holes in the bucket before you keep filling it with water. So yeah, marketing, marketing is not going to fix a bad business. All right, great marketing will only accelerate the demise of a bad business. It is a, an amplifier. It is, it is a fuel. It is an accelerant. All right, and so it's like alcohol. Right. If you're a jerk, alcohol is going to make you a bigger jerk. It's like money. Frankly, money's an accelerant. Right. We all know people who got rich and got became worse versions of themselves. You know, people who got rich and became better versions of themselves. Marketing is an accelerant. It is an amplifier. You make sure that what you have is worthy of amplification before you ask marketing to fix it. And conversely, on the other side, if you do have something, let's say that you have confidence in, you have confidence in your product or service, you have confidence in your team, then it seems like there wouldn't be a limit to the amount that you'd be willing to, to invest in it. And actually, this is interesting because, you know, when you're in any periods of, of scary times, when people are pulling back on, on ad spend and pulling back on marketing, and, you know, people are looking at it from the standpoint of, I'm looking to save money right now. This is, you know, this is a scary time. And yet the ones that seem to get ahead and kind of make the greatest leaps during those moments are the ones that doubled down the most. And I know like with digital market, I mean, you guys are relentless in, in sending emails like all day long, but I'm never, I'm never annoyed by the emails. I'm never bothered by them. In fact, I'm always sharing them with the team. Cause I'm like, look, these guys literally sent me four emails today and I'm not bothered by any of it. Cause they're all great emails. Yeah. Well, so there's two things there. There's that you mentioned that I think are both, I think you're right on both. But I think they're worthy of addressing separately because they're important. The first is investing and doubling down even when times are scary and rough. That's one thing. The second though, th that I think is the easier one is, yeah, look, if you believe in what you're doing, why wouldn't you market the heck out of it? Right? This idea that, oh, I'm going to be so good that they'll find me. That's never happened. That has never happened. That is a myth that artists tell other poor artists, literally. The best kept secret. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. You know, it, it's so good. It speaks for itself. No, it doesn't. It lays there motionless. People, marketing, advertising, that is the only thing that is, that is going to speak. You know, most people know who Vincent Van Gogh is, right? You've heard of Vincent Van Gogh, right? What people don't realize is that there would be no Van Gogh um, if there was no Theo or Joanna. Like Theo was his brother 
And he was his vamp. He was the person that was out there, you know, while he was alive, he was trying. And after their death, the only reason anybody knows who they are is because they're like, this guy is great. Every great artist had somebody trumpeting them. Picasso, Picasso was a marketer who was an amazing artist. And it is the same for your business. Nobody else is going to talk about you. Nobody's going to talk about you. They're only ever going to talk about themselves. So if you're not going to talk about you, you're not going to hire somebody to talk about you, whether it's you know agency or PR or whatever, nobody's going to talk about you. I don't care how great you are. The best pro- it maybe it should, right? And, and we could talk about whether or not this is an injustice, but if you truly believe the best product should win, then create the best product and market the crap out of it. But, but living in some delusional la-la land where it's like, oh, all I have to do is create the best product and it'll win, that's, it's just not how life works. And, and hopefully with this audience, you know, they get that, right? I think we're dealing with a, a pretty pragmatic crowd here. Uh, but I often talk to people who are a little bit more, you know, artistic and, and uh, they're just like, oh, I just, but I work so hard. It's like, that doesn't matter. People have lives. So yeah, if you believe in something, you got to market the heck out of it. I, I don't get offended when marketers market, you know, I think, I think they should. When business people talk about their business and they, you know, you should, if you believe in it, you'll market it. And the people who say, oh, I shouldn't do that. Those are just people who have their own fears about rejection and they're trying to basically impose them on you. And I, I, by the way, I understand why somebody would be nervous to do that. I'm the worst marketer of my own stuff, but at least I know it. Like, at least I know I'm wrong. It's when people take some type of like moral high ground, like you shouldn't do it, that it pisses me off. So that was kind of the first thing that the other thing about marketing hard, you know, in scary times I had lots of friends who were like, well, what do you think? Like, you know, when kind of COVID hit and some of the other stuff, like, well, you know, I think we're going to pull our ad budget. I said the same thing to all of them. I said, were you live in 2008? Yep. Wish you'd bought some real estate. Yeah. Like before everything or right afterwards? Yeah. Right after I, I wish I would have done it. Okay. Well, we're increasing our ad budget. So you do you. Again, it's easy to say. I'm sympathetic. I understand why people are fearful. I understand why when things get scary, whether it's an an external event or an internal event. But if your economics make sense, if people are buying, that's the only way that you're going to grow. I've never seen a business just grow without, you know, investing in that growth in in some form of advertising. And when we talk about marketing, I mean, and I say this just for clarity, because we don't just mean digital marketing and someone, you know, here's they do radio advertising, TV, billboards, and so on. I mean, I had a guest on uh, on the podcast that he said that what he does, he really doesn't consider it marketing, but he's given a presentation to his audience of lawyers one a week, every week for 10 years straight. Yeah, that, that sounds like marketing to me. Yeah, no, all, all these things. So, you know, advertising, uh, I see advertising as being kind of a subset of the broader category of marketing. Marketing's job is to move customers through the customer journey, right? From that initial point of awareness through that, that engagement and that nurturing to getting them to take that first step to getting them to actually kind of, you know, complete and become a client to making sure that they're served and that the promises are delivered. Like a lot of times marketing's like, cool, hot potato, I'm out. You take it sales, you know, or you take it product. No, no, no. Marketing needs to stay engaged throughout that to make sure that the promises that were made are delivered upon. And then marketing needs to come around at the end to get customer stories, to get those testimonials, and to hopefully get some referrals. So marketing's job is to own the entirety of the customer journey. I see advertising and sales actually as subsets of marketing. Salespeople hate hate it when I say that. People who consider themselves to be like admin, you know, in radio, they hate it when I say that. I think it's right. I think that that advertising is that first stage of amplification. 
right? It's a specific lever that you can pull. Uh, same with sales. You know, a, a lot of sales right now is um, certainly when you think about e-commerce is being reset completely. People are just going on and, and buying. That won't happen in every field, but marketing is the field that remains because marketing owns the entirety of that of that customer journey. I think it's important. I think it's here. And I don't think that it's um, constrained by any, any particular uh, medium. But right now the whole world is digital, especially in a world where you know people are kind of scared to go out and hug each other and meet face to face and stuff like that. You know, and even when everybody is like, yeah, let's go do it. I think everybody's going to have a preference for if I don't have to leave my house, you know, if I don't have to talk to somebody on the phone, then yeah, let's just chat here. So we see ourselves as digital marketers, but if I'm being honest, I even think the term itself is going to be a bit, be a bit passe. What isn't digital these days, right? It's just marketing. So I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. I know you mentioned that you know he or she was able to you know to spend the most to acquire a customer will win, and I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that when you when you think about that, you know, to be able to spend the most to acquire a customer or client, you have to have clients that you know have a strong lifetime value and are like high value clients, if you will. But with that comes perhaps different messaging. And, and I think it's very important when you you know when you're marketing the brand or however you're positioning that. I know you've said great marketing divides. And yet sometimes people are, are quite afraid to niche down or focus on resonating with, with, with certain audiences because, you know, if, if there's a personal injury lawyer listening to this, they may say, hey, look, I just want injured people. Right. Divide is maybe a, I would say great. I have said great marketing divides. I know, I know what the, the reference. Um, we are so divided right now that I, I might word that a bit more sensitively. What I think that great marketing must do is great marketing must get people to not just notice, but to stare. Okay, so I think today it is easier than ever to get a glance, to get somebody to glance your way. You could do something, you know, ridiculous. You could do something kind of out there, and and people will glance. You know, it's like if you've ever been at a stoplight and somebody honks their horn. You know, people are going to turn around and you're going to get a glance, right? But to get somebody to to stare, to hold attention, that's a different animal. Great marketing doesn't merely get a glance. Great marketing gets a stare, and the way that you do that is to let people know that I'm talking just to you. Right? So if you're just sitting there with a megaphone, if you're just a random horn that was honked, then I'm going to glance and be like, they're not talking to me. That wasn't about me. I'm fine. Right? But if I know that you're talking just to me, where I am right now, just this group that I identify with, whatever it is, okay, now you got my attention because most people aren't doing that. Right? Most of the, of the marketing, most of the advertising out there, it is not doing that. It is trying to talk to everyone. And as a result of that, no one's paying attention. They're just another person yelling at a, at a sports game. And where we've seen a lot of uh, attorneys and law firms market, sometimes they're marketing at, you know, talking about the size of their verdicts, their outcomes, their case results. And sometimes that's not the most successful approach. In, in fact, I know we talk a lot about storytelling and it, it can sound cute, right? It's like, okay, tell stories. But it seems like the best marketing really is storytelling. Because stories engage, you know, for the reason we said before, and, and they all, they've always worked, right? That's, that's how our brains work. When we go into story mode, we, we want to know how it works. So we are primed. This is how we learn about our world. You can throw data at somebody, they will forget it. And, and they've done this. I, I'll, I'll have to find the study. But they've done this where they have, they've given participants in a, you know, in a study like a bunch of facts, a bunch of data. And then they told them a story that was completely contrary to that data. And, and afterwards, they did, some, did a follow-up and everybody recounted only the stuff from the story, but they remembered that there was data that backed it up. 
And so what essentially what the study showed is like you can spout a bunch of data at people, but if there isn't a story to go along with it, then then they're not going to retain the greater message. We don't just remember a random sequence of facts and numbers. So yeah, I mean, if you're out there talking about the verdict, that is so many of these things, if you're just doing a laundry list of data, a laundry list of features, a laundry list of benefits. And I see marketers do this all the time. You know, I think about the parents in uh, like Charlie Brown specials where it's like, wah, 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 wah. that's all they're hearing, right? It's the narrative that captures and holds the attention. So I think you got to be sometimes a little bit outrageous to get the glance. You got to, right? You got to. But if you don't tell them a story pretty quickly, they're going to look away. Ryan has worked with thousands of entrepreneurs over the course of his career. He's seen successful entrepreneurs scale their businesses effectively, and he's seen a lot of failure and frustration too. I wanted to know what have been some of the commonalities that he's seen. I see that that successful entrepreneurs, they are slightly overconfident, but they also have enough humility to not go all the way out there. They also just have this irrational desire for things that are just slightly out of reach, right? And, and, and what's weird is it never goes away. Um, and, and so some people will be like, well, when are you going to have enough? And I'm realizing it's not really about the stuff. It's not really about the money even, um, which about, I know anytime somebody says it's not about the money, it's how you know it's about the money. But really for most of the most successful entrepreneurs I know, it's a scorekeeping mechanism. They got somebody else managing the money. They look at it. It matters. They're not foolish with their money because uh, they know that that's the fuel. That's the accelerant of growth, but they're not doing it just for the money. They're doing it because I think this is what we do. I mean, I, I finally just said, this is just what I do. Weavers weave, singers sing. This is what we do. Uh, and, and I think that once you've kind of found that and, and it's your calling, you just want to make, you want to build. And, and I think it's a good thing. Right? I think it's a net positive. Not, not all entrepreneurs are the best in the world. I mean, not all businesses are, you know, necessarily noble, but boy, it sure is nice to be able to provide uh, a living for other people. It's nice to, to be able to create a product or a service from scratch and deliver it to somebody who needs it. That's a really, really good thing. And so I think at the end of the day, there are inventors and there are entrepreneurs. And the difference is I think inventors, very often they just want to make stuff because they just like the idea of making things and they want to see if it can happen. I think that, that with entrepreneurs, they want to make it, they want to bring it to market because they got to know, does anybody else agree with them? Does anybody else think that this should be here? And that just constant, okay, they knew that one. Now, now what about the next one? That's the thing that I see with entrepreneurs, the ones that, that are, are, are true entrepreneurs who people call it a serial entrepreneur. I don't like that term. It's like, no, it's, I think you're just an entrepreneur. It just is what you are. And on the other side of that, what have you seen as, as some of the commonalities behind some of the least successful entrepreneurs? You know, when I think about the people that are, that are not as successful, usually it's all about you know, me and I want this thing. So they're coming at it, seeing it purely as a way that they can get something that they want. And so they don't think about their customers at all. And they're essentially choosing business because they're afraid of robbing a bank. Um, and I have seen people that are just flat out larcenous, you know, in that, in that way. And because they don't serve the clients, um, because they don't serve their customers, they do get found out. That's one end of the spectrum. Because we're all going to have a little bit of selfishness in, them, in us, like because we, we want the thing that we want. That's what drives us. But at some point, it's got to switch, and you got to actually care, genuinely and sincerely care about your customer. Uh, the other big thing that I've seen in, in the you know least successful entrepreneurs is they're just so afraid of failure. They're so afraid of looking foolish that they never get out of the starting blocks. And those, to me, are kind of more the inventors. 
Those are those are the those are the two extremes. You know, you've got a lot of entrepreneurs who I think they just haven't found their thing yet. And so I wouldn't say that they're not successful as long as they're still in the fight, then to me they're they're successful. Um, it, it just hasn't happened yet. It hasn't clicked yet, but it's a matter of time. It's a matter of reps. It's a matter of sets. You know, they're, they're going to get there. Really, the ones that I see who are, that I would define as an unsuccessful entrepreneur are the ones that just never, they, they never do anything because they're so afraid of failure or the ones that just are so unbelievably selfish. And interestingly enough, the seeds of both of those are selfishness just manifesting in two very different ways. It, it's interesting in both the, the types of entrepreneurs that you've described. So it's interesting in the sense that if you're someone who's, let's say, primarily selfish or just solely motivated by money, I actually find that those entrepreneurs don't get as far because they can get to a certain point and then they let their foot off the gas versus the entrepreneur that's just always thinking about what's next in the future and so on. There's no amount of money that they will ever stop. They will ever retire. And then they're always thinking long game. They're thinking five, 10, 20 years out. And then they also make different decisions as a result of that. So I think one, that's incredible be fascinating. But I'd also like to kind of look at it from the standpoint of like almost like where passion plays a role or, or more so I think where alignment, I think that's probably a better word for it in the sense that if you have to ask, is this for me? It seems like that's probably not it, but I don't want to like also skirt away from the fact that there's going to be really tough days and, and, and difficult times and days that you won't enjoy getting out of bed. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm a dad, father of four kids. I love my kids. There's days I don't enjoy being a dad. Right. It's like, so, I mean, I think that goes with anything and not, and it doesn't mean I don't love them. It doesn't mean I'm not a good dad, but it's like, I don't want to go to that soccer game today, you know, or they were just little punks, right? Like they spilled like, so that's a part of it. And that comes with anything, like anything, you know, is, is going to have that aspect of it. But I, I do think like what's tough about business is, you know, when we first start, it's because, there's something that that we want. And so I visualize it as like this big circle and that's us. And the business is kind of a smaller circle within the, within the bigger circle, right? But then something happens if that if it's successful, that big circle gets bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually consumes what is now the smaller circle that is us. And so that can be, that can be tough really, because then you are your business and your business is you. And I think that can also be really, really, really dangerous where you don't really have an identity separate from your business. I've seen this happen with a lot of entrepreneurs. And so what you have to do is begin to really pull these things apart and, and allow them to become a bit of a Venn diagram, right? Where there's overlap. There's gotta be overlap. I think one of the hardest things in the world for entrepreneurs to do is to have their own life and their own identity outside of their business. Because if you don't, then that's when I think you can really get burned out. That's when a failure in business, you know, isn't just a financial hardship, but it now becomes this personal um, failure. And, and so that's where sometimes passion, it's like anything, right? Anything taken to the extreme. If, if, if you ever want to know the thing that will ultimately destroy you, it's the thing that currently you're the best at. Right. The thing that makes you special is the thing that will ultimately destroy you. And, and the better you are at something, the more extreme those things will be. Right. Normal, ordinary, boring people, they don't have anything that'll destroy them because they don't have anything that makes them particularly great. But if you got something that makes you great, the inverse of that is likely the thing that will destroy you. And I think for entrepreneurs, it is that passion. Right. It is that passion. It's that thing that keeps them going. But if you're not careful, um, that passion can result in a loss of identity. I think Viktor Frankl called it an existential void where we don't know. And I've been in that place too. I've been in that place too, where it's like, why am I doing this anymore? I do have everything. I'm tired and I don't understand. I remember my wife one time coming to me because I started all this for her. The whole reason I really started my first business was to buy her an engagement ring. 
literally. I met her and I was like, I don't have any money. You know, I first did it because I need to make some, I was broke and just need to make some money. And then, I'll, but I was only going to do this couple of projects, pay the rent. It's like, no, I need to keep doing this thing because uh, I met this girl and I want to buy her an engagement ring. That was the reason behind it. Then it's like, okay, we're going to have kids and I want to be able to get them a house and all the stuff that they want, you know, and, and provide this lifestyle, right? That's what was driving me. That was, that was my why. And then we had all that, but I was still going. I was still going, 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 going. I remember she came to me one night and she said, you can keep working like you're working. That's fine. Um, I know who I married, but you can no longer say that you're doing it for us because we're good. We just want more of you. And oh man, that was crushing because I realized like I'm not doing this for them. And I don't know if I'm really even doing it for me. I don't know why I'm doing it. And, And what had happened is the business had consumed me. And I had to separate the two. And that's a painful process. It really, really is. But I, but I do think, I do think that that's something that successful entrepreneurs in particular need to be careful of. Man, we could do a whole podcast on that, on that very topic, because it's like, how do you balance this commitment to excellence? Because I feel like you need these people in the world, right? You, you need these amazing entrepreneurs that like not only just push forward innovation, but create great things and great impacts and great communities and just, and so on. And really just allow everyone to move forward, but at the same time, not allow it to work against you and not really destroy you. How do, how do you balance the two? So uh, for me, it's, it's having, you know, a partner, you know, in, in life who um, calls me on it. And, you know, look, as humans, we're going to show commitment in two ways. I teach this in marketing, right? We're going to show commitment in our wallets and we show commitment in our calendars. So from a business, from a marketing perspective, right? I want to get my prospects, my clients, I want to be in their calendars, right? I want them blocking off time, you know, to listen to my podcast, you know, to, uh, to come into the office, right? I want them paying me, even if it's a little bit of money, right? If, if, if I'm in their wallet and I'm in their calendar, then there's a commitment there. You know, we got a relationship that, that applies to our personal things too. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I do is I, my wife and I, we basically do an offsite, right? We go away from the kids and, and, uh, twice a year at the end of the year and then around in the summer and we plan out our year and, and it's okay. You got first dibs of the calendar. When do we want to take the family vacations? Let's block it out. We don't have to know where we're going, but like, when are we going to take it? Let's, let's block these times off. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, she knows like, you know, traffic conversion summit, our big event is scheduled years in advance. So she's not going to ask me to move that. We can go around that. But in general, like I want to make sure that family, if I'm going to say that that's my first priority, I got to give it my first priority in my calendar, you know, in terms of, you know, money and, and, and investment. If she's saying like, we don't need any more then I, and I'm spending more time then I can say like, well, I'm trying to put more money in the business bank account you know, and, and less time here, like I, I got to check that. So having somebody in your life um, who can call you on your own BS, I think is really important because especially as business leaders, you know, we're going to be surrounded by people who just nod their heads and say, yes, we're going to be surrounded by people who very often are aligned. You know, if it's your company and you've got junior partners, they're, they're going to want to go, go, go too, because they're not yet where you are and they want to be where you are. And so you're getting this kind of upward push you know, from the, from the people on your team and in inverse. And so you just kind of, kind of have to have open conversations and acknowledge that there is some conflict there and you're not going to get it right all the time. I still definitely don't. Balance looks like a whole lot of whipsaw back and forth, but the average is somewhere in the middle. What makes us special is we, we, we play at the edges. We're not afraid to, to dance on the skinny branches, but you can't stay out of the skinny branches the whole time. And Ryan, how do you define success? To me, success is all about optionality. Right. If, if I've got options, then I'm successful. When, when I think about 
the people who are in like war-torn countries, right? Who are in these really just awful situations. They don't have options. They don't have the internet. They don't have running water. You know, they're in a, in a survival state. That's terrible. What technology has given us is options. You think about the entertainment options that you have, the communication options that you have, the travel options that we have. Options. That, that is what an abundant life looks like is having options. And, and maybe what that is, is having the option to do nothing at all that given day. You know, the option for leisure, which I think is critically important. But I know that I am uh, in a really good place when it doesn't mean that I'm not doing things I don't want to do. Because what I've done is I've chosen the things that I'm going to be a slave to. Like I've chosen that I'm going to allow my children to dictate my schedule. I have made that choice and I'm happy with the choice. It doesn't mean that every little morsel of it is ideal, but I've chosen that. So even the things that I don't like, they're aligned to choices that I've made that are greater in the whole, even if in a particular moment, I don't like it as much. Same with the business, right? There's, there's times when you got to make tough choices and do hard things and it sucks, but I'll take that because I got the option not to, I can opt out, I could do something else. So for me, success is all about optionality. It's all about maintaining, keeping your options open, being able to do, and, and really the option to decide who and what am I going to be committed to. It's not a life devoid of commitments. It's not a life devoid of obligations. That sounds kind of miserable, but it's that I get to choose uh, what I'm going to be enslaved to. And I will say, when I look back at every single guest that we've had on this podcast, I will say that one commonality... It, nearly every single one of them, if not all of them, it's just been the fact that they do not have to be doing the things that they are doing. They choose to be doing them. And I will say dangerous adversary, because if you don't have to do any of it, but you choose to do it because you just truly love it, you're committed to making an impact, then not only do you approach it differently, you know, you're know, you more bought in, you're more sold on what it is that you are doing, you're sold on the future that you're kind of setting out for yourself and those around you. But I think you just make better decisions. Yeah, you're not as emotionally tied to it. When you have only one option and it has to work, um, you're going to be that kind of emotional thing, which which can be beneficial in the moment, but it can also be very, very, very reckless. And um, there's something to just having a calmness about life that I think is going to is going to help you make, like you said, make better decisions. Now, there's always people out there. Everyone is giving advice. Everyone's giving people a lot of shoulds, things that they should do. Here's how they approach things. I mean, there's always people in the audience or even people around you that they have their own feelings about how you should be either approaching your business or your life or what have you. And especially as, as a business grows, you get even more you know, advice. But what's been some of the worst advice that you've received? I always hate it when somebody says, follow your heart. And it's, I'm not like, that sounds very cynical, but I think there's something to be said for I'm going to gather data and make decisions based on talking to people and doing all this other stuff because my heart has been wrong lots of times. Like sometimes I'm just an asshole. Sometimes I'm just being selfish. Sometimes I'm just being scared. And so following kind of that reptilian, because that's very often what we talk about when we talk about the heart, what we're really almost talking about is that reptilian part of our brain that is instinctive. And it's like, no, like I, I do think at the end of the day, you got to do a gut check but, you know, same with like preserving optionality. I also like to strategically procrastinate. How long can I push out that decision? Like if I can push out the decision and live in ambiguity, especially if it's an important one, it doesn't mean that I won't be decisive if I need to, but if I don't need to make the decision right now, I'm creating options. That's what you mean when you talk about a long game. Just this idea of like, oh, just like, just follow your heart and it'll lead you where you want to go. Ugh, I've seen that not work so many times. Like, yeah, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to talk to other people. You know, it's not, maybe not the best advice that I've received, but like somebody told me one time, old, rich, happy, find old, 
rich, happy people and ask them what they did. <laughs> there's a lot of like poor, unhappy people. Like there's a lot of old, rich, pissed off people, bitter people. Like you find somebody with all three of those, ask them what they did. You'll get some wisdom. And I'm in complete agreement. I think follow your heart. You know, the, the first thing that came to mind, it's like, you talk about hiring, right? And hiring people. Following your heart might be like the worst piece of advice ever. Because I used to believe that I was good at hiring people, that I could like just, you know, I would know in my gut. And when we ran the data and you look back over, over the years before we actually implemented a formalized hiring process and assessments and so on, before we had all that, I thought I was pretty good. I was about 50% right and 50% wrong. I might as well flip the coin with every candidate. And it's the same with same. So same with people, same with a lot of the marketing tests we've run. I can't tell you how many times I've been just absolutely convinced that something was going to work and I was wrong. I can't tell you, you know, how many different, um, you know, business model shifts. And we remember this stuff and, and tell stories about the times we were right. We quickly forget. And generally those who love us don't, don't remind us of all of our failings. Right. And so, you know, we get this kind of selective, you know, cognitive biases that, that enter in. And so you gotta, you gotta build a process around this stuff. You, you really do. And if you got right, you got, we got to know that success teaches us almost nothing because there's a good chance you got lucky. Uh, it, failures, we can actually learn something from scientists know this, right? We don't learn anything. If our experiment worked, we learned very little. If it failed, we can actually learn some stuff. And, and Ryan, as we come to a close, you know, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, you're certainly a game changer. But what does being a game changer mean to you? To me, it's about playing by your own rules. I, uh, I remember, so my youngest son, he asked me, uh, I asked him, like, what do you want to be for Halloween? He said, I can't decide. I'm trying to choose if I want to be a firefighter or if I want to be Batman. I'm like, okay, well, what do you think? And he thought about it and was really quiet. And, at me and went, you know what? I think I'm going to be both. And by God, this kid went as firefighter Batman. He had Batman thing with a firefighter hat on. People were like, what are you, firefighter Batman? I'm like, oh, you didn't want to pick one? He's like, no, I wanted to be both. Um, I'm like, this is a kid that's playing by his own rules. And anytime, so many of us are, we don't like the game that we're playing. And, you know, we don't realize like you can opt out of that game. Um, you can completely create a new game that you can win. And I think so often we accept the rules and we accept the game that other people in that life have given us. And I think if there's one thing that entrepreneurs do, whether you're an entrepreneurial programmer and, and you write software or you're an entrepreneurial attorney, right? Is uh, we do make up our own rules. We don't, we don't accept the default settings that others have placed on our lives. And I think that's what it means to be a game changer. I wanna give a huge thank you to Ryan Dice for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when Ryan mentioned that the business that is willing to spend the most money to acquire a customer will always win. But good marketing alone is not going to fix a bad business. You have to be willing to build a strong foundation if you want to succeed long term. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Ryan Dice, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking with crisis management expert, professional fixer, and the inspiration for the popular TV show Scandal, Judy Smith. You have to have the ability, just like you do in law sometimes, is to be able to make quick decisions based on the facts that you have them. Because somebody somewhere is going to tweet about it, go on the air about it, write about it. And so you have to be able to weigh your words and messaging quickly. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. 